All right, everyone. Welcome, welcome, welcome um, to Modern Campfire Stories, part two for 2016. We're happy to have Josh Budin up first here, and like I said, Megan Kenny up second. Uh, Josh is a poet. Josh Budin is the author of The Union of Geometry and Ash, which is out from Bear Star Press. He has received the Dorothy Brunsman Poetry Prize and the Keene Prize in Literature, as well as three grants from the Dorothy Sargent Roseberg Foundation. His poems have appeared widely in such journals as the Missouri Review, Poetry Northwest, 32 Poems, Hayden's Ferry Review, and Iron Horse. And in the words of our man Sam Berman over there, he's got many lines that are dope as station. <laughs> Josh Budin. I feel like there's some experts out here. Okay, good. Um, thank you for the kind introduction, Christian. Um, I'm actually new to Boise. We've been here just over a year. It's been wonderful. We came from Portland. Um, kind people. Beautiful weather sometimes, the outdoors. Um, the one weird thing about Boise that I've noticed so far is people outside of Boise think very strange things about this city. Um, I've had two friends who've asked me, is it like the Wild West? <laughs> and being a good friend, I say, it's exactly like the Wild West. <clears throat> but since we're downtown at the Beautiful Modern, I'm going to start with a poem about being in the city. It's called Cash. Like a man rises to greet his life at sunrise, the line of sky lifting into light, and thinks of a woman he had once how she lifted for him so slowly her skirt and what came after. Today he'll plummet into love with every woman he meets, with a man raising the gate of his bodega, with eyelids even. Anything that opens, opens him. Until later. Until lunch, maybe, when he's walking past the steaming food carts, longing for pierogies from this little Polish diner that went under a few years ago. Potatoes and onions folded into dough, so simple, so impossible to perfect. And he wants suddenly only perfection, to keep walking forever or to fold himself beneath his bedsheets and imitate oblivion. Like above him, these lazy doves decorating the trees, each head tucked beneath a wing. Strange to think such a white thing can carry even a spoonful of darkness, but it must. And feel free to make noise. Sometimes the awkward poetry silence kind of makes me feel strange, so <laughs> clap whatever you want, snap your fingers. Um, I've learned an important lesson reading poems. When you read a poem about an imaginary lady lifting up her skirt, the next poem you read should be about your wife. So I'm going to read a poem called The Book of Love. And I do lift a lot of my titles from songs, you'll, so you'll probably realize that. But. <clears throat> it's all wrong. The climax arriving at the close of the first chapter, and after that, the lover's always saying, remember when? Then 200 pages describing the precise arrangement of wildflowers in a Coke can on the old oak table. How, if you lean in close and huff the half-dead blooms, 
Their perfume is both clover honey and the dark earth from which they were plucked. Sure, the minor characters all sparkle and spit, but read a second time, it's clear they were lifted from Dickens. Their peccadillos only parade floats our lovers wave and throw candy from. Now comes the chapter of quarrels, chapter three. Don't worry, in chapter five, they'll drink cappuccino and a quaint patisserie, and he'll cover his face and weep into his cupped hands, and after, she'll sip his tears and be restored. Chapter four, it contains a single word, longing. The last chapter repeats this theme. The rest is a thousand hand-scrawled pages of prologue and notes. For example, on page 316, when she hangs their sheets out to dry and the wind tears them to the ground, the reference states in the Victorian tradition, this is a harbinger of death or the first day of fall. It's only a book. Maybe, maybe they leave the sheets in the grass and invite the neighbors for a picnic. Maybe they go back inside and make love or beef stroganoff. To tell the truth, I've never read the whole thing through, but I remember this scene where he offers her his sweater, even though he's naked underneath and a little sick, and she unravels it until there's only a single yellow thread and ties it around both their wrists. Or was that the night we met? Was it a sugar packet you offered me or your heart? All I remember are those green eyes, your imitation of a camel, that bus line bungalow stuffed with books, and then you lean in close and whisper, it wasn't like that at all. The house was on Hart Street. The yellow sweater was a bus ticket. And so we talk all night about rhapsody and trees. And each word between us means less than we mean it to. Therefore, we understand each other perfectly. So, as you'll come to realize, one of my preoccupations is love. I think I like it as a subject because it's difficult. Um, but as I did research on love poems, I noticed there was a certain niche of love poem that was missing, and kind of a fraternal love poem, a poem from one guy to another guy, where you admire that person, but it's not really sexual. It's just kind of a, I don't know, a connection. So I, um, I stole another song title, this time from Larry Cohen, and I wrote this poem. It's called Take This Waltz. Tonight, I could love you like hipsters love Pabst. <laughs> you in the corner booth with that full beard I've always wanted, those secondhand rags that never fit me right. Tonight, I could take you home and read you poems more sophisticated than this one. Poems where love is the other subject, and so you feel it even more, like a woman you can't have and so must but I'd rather we just shove all these tables back and hold each other close. Make those couples move. It's okay. There's no way for two straight men to parade their affections without a few people getting out of their seats. Just hold me close. Let's dance like middle school. Turning slowly around, around in such tiny circles. Isn't that what lovers do? Isn't this the part where we raise our clutched hands to make a doorway and you spin me twice beneath the lentil? Once to enter a pact, once more to enter a world where there's no need for pacts. Close your eyes and pretend those clinking glasses sing our secret chandelier. 
You can't. It's okay. Hold me closer, tight as you can, as if we weren't strangers, as if we weren't men. I always get parched, and I've done this before with a beer, because it feels cool, but then the lines sometimes get a little shaky by the end. Um, so I have love, I write about a lot, and one of my other preoccupations is manhood, the idea of manhood, what makes a man, and I find those two themes either intertwine or battle with each other a lot. Um, but I'm gonna read a manhood poem for you. It's about my dad. It's not a daddy poem, by the way, it's just a poem about my dad. <laughs> Finches. Because my father kept 37 finches in a man-sized cage in my childhood home, I dream most nights of flight. The city black below, except a few house lights like some ragged zodiac I almost recognize before I fall back into that snug room on Steel Street. Because my father left West Virginia the year the strip miners tore the last hill down, he harbors the dark of mine shafts in his eyes and teaches me the names for flowers and stars. What were we driving to find those mornings through the puddle-dark streets of southeast Portland, past empty parks and used car lots, past the bums stuttering up Sandy with their stolen grocery carts and heaps of gleaming cans? He'd go in alone, fetch some channel locks or insecticide and a bag of gizzards we'd pass between us like tokens, bullion fish from the ribcage of sunken colonial clipper ships, our innermost secrets, Bullshit, I can hear him say, shifting into fifth. Eat it before it gets cold. Is my manhood really contingent upon his death? Was it enough that I borrowed his flannels without asking and eloped into grunge? Heisted his pipe and puffed hibiscus. Will any death do? Probably not the psychic kind, but some violence ornery enough that only a swagger will keep it at arm's length. Even that afternoon, I stood beside his hospital bed, watching the nurse as she peeled back the bandage, the single wing that concealed an eight-inch wound where they went in with their crowbars and their welding torch and scraped clean those cold, dark corridors until his heart walls glowed like Chinese lanterns drifting down some river with an impossible name on a day when two virgins marry or the dead come back dressed as peach trees. Forgive me, this type of reverie is a town found only by detour. The sunset tunnel closed that morning we barreled down the back streets that hedged the zoo, and out of nowhere the rose gardens flared like all those minor fires we survive each other for. Dad, it's December here in Texas and strangely cold. The stars loom huge. One of those nights when God cranks up the wattage, as you would say, to take a better look. Like the time the manager cut back the, bo cut back the boxwoods that fronted our rental and winter showed up, the windows chattering like teeth. Within a day, the finches were dead. That night I didn't dream but stayed awake, listening to those sudden muffled notes. That impossible pulse doled out over many hours as each bird froze on its perch, then fell. Who knows what it means? Not me. In the morning, in socked feet, I crept out and pared 
peered out and through the bars, but the cage was clean. Okay, so I'm going to do some work poems. For those who don't know, which is probably almost all of you, uh, my day job is uh, I work as a speech therapist um, here in town for a cool company called Chatterbox, and some of my colleagues are here. Yeah. Um, but instead of starting with poems about a career that I love, I'm going to start with a poem about a job that I really, really hated. Um, it was one of my first jobs, and I worked on the night shift in a plastics manufacturing plant. I know it sounds glamorous, but it really wasn't. Um, it was awful, but I got this poem out of it, so I'm excited for that. It's called Strange Shapes the Night Makes. You might as well call it my surrogate heart, this hydraulic press stamping plastic molds and time, the graveyard crew so used to it, they bullshit nonstop over the pumps. Slipping a quick hand in to fetch the forms and check and trim the excess with a paring knife as the hopper drops another inch and the foreman circulating drops his safety glasses lower on his nose and eyes me, eyes the stack I'm supposed to keep from backing up in the chute but can't as the woman beside me laughs in Spanish and runs a bent finger over the cut to check the edge is true. It's crazy. These people toiling all night like the lesser dreams of sleeping millions, shaving dowels and end caps, snapping the excess from a sheet of model airplane parts as if this tedium were somehow essential to a little boy's conception of flight. As if the foreman out shouting the generator might span the decades between me and Las Mujeres, might rig my slow hands with some facility but I only partly catch what he says because the plates crash down again, because I'm 17, saving for that bungee cord forward and a rear view vision of the factory receding into myth, those faces grown more faint than street lights at noon. The summer will be over soon. Soon someone will take my place at station eight, someone with hands like hers and news from Guadalajara. A last drag of light loiters in the parking lot as the machines start up, as the gossip starts up in the same spot they left it last night, next to the knives and safety glasses, and her hands parse what is needed from what is not. Her right hand mercy, her left hand grief, my right hand shifting into fifth, my left reaching to roll the window down to feel time against my face to decipher the wind, which is nothing like her voice, but reminds me somehow of her teasing, pobrecito, pobrecito. As I run my finger over the lip of the knob, the plastic so smooth, you'd never guess where the excess was shaved. So perfect, you'd never know she existed. Thanks. I, re I realize when I read that poem that in my childhood, we used to be able to roll our windows down by hand. And people, some people are, must be thinking, like, what is this thing he's talking about in this poem? They're going to bring it back, don't worry. <clears throat> OK. 
Okay, so now, as I said, I, I'm a speech therapist, so I promised my speech friends if they came, I would read some speech poems. Um, and I work, I work with kids, and most of my career I've worked with kids, but I spent two years working with adults, which was wonderful and depressing. And so uh, there's a theme. When I do depressing things, I get poems. So I have, um, this first poem is actually about working with adults. It's, um, it's called Louise 63 Tries to Say Umbrella. Though carousel comes out, something about circles or those first fat drops of rain deliberate as fingertips touching the Wurlitzer to life. Or maybe it's the Barker's voice, so strut strong and lifted, wide enough to invite the whole night into his throat, his high arched palette bright pink, pink as the little girl's umbrella. Or is it the night itself opening so many strangers pushing past her that to stop and stare up into the darkness is to stand at the still center of a sudden storm. You can't touch her. And so you wander from booth to booth, pretending the games aren't rigged, side-saddling the fluorescent Appaloosa named Happenstance, until the gates are locked and the carnival torn down and moved, where you are moved and then torn down and then moved again, to where she stands in her robe, in the harsh light, in the lobby of the outpatient hospital, calling you by the name her dead husband once wore, you who lead her toward the window and try to accompany each stray word safely home. Don't worry, if it's raining when you go, you can borrow her carousel. Sorry, I get so dry. I feel like I haven't quite dried out from Portland yet and <laughs> something in the weather. So I'm gonna read another poem that has some speech therapy in it, but like a lot of my poems, it kind of gets sidetracked. Um, and I think that's a really healthy thing to not know exactly where you're going. Um, this is a poem called Muscle Memory. How many linchpin unlabeled days suited up for my adulthood? And I swear still I'm standing in that Saturday schoolyard, counting slowly down from three to one, then heaving the basketball over my shoulder, miming the horn as the ball erases the space between me and my true future self. As the shot drops in every twelfth time and the crowd erupts from my throat and there's nothing left to want. How many hallelujahs between the asshole and the saint Sometimes a minute passes, an hour, and I find myself staring out the same south-facing window, wondering what I'm looking for. Maybe that's all we are, two dozen rote memories, a meanness honed in pool halls, a cunning in shopping malls, the last line of some cheesy poem we were all made to memorize in eighth grade. Tomorrow I'll be an epiphany. But for now, let me be me that summer I taught Ted, the aphasic fisherman, to speak again, to type three-line emails to his niece in Yakima so he wouldn't be alone. He called me Kid, I remember, because he couldn't remember my name, couldn't remember the connector words and, is, but, that tethered Portland to downpour. So sweet, those almost haikus 
Rose Garden, Tuesday Bloom, Turkey Sandwich, Love, Hello, Soon. Then one session he showed me how to tie a fly, who knows what type, looping the line three quick times around the body, binding filament and feather with a deafness like breeze. My buddy's wife cries to me that she wakes up each night to find him assembling his rifle in his sleep like he's back in Talafar. How long before that phantom urgency lies down between them and shuts its eyes? Forget it. Let us head to the bar. Drink ourselves down to what we really are. Sure, I'll probably pocket a pint glass, get blasted and offer to drive. Never mind it. Drink up. Get in. This is only the hundredth of a thousand nights it takes to make a perfect paper crane. So I'm going to do something kind of scary. Not for you guys, for me. Although now I kind of wish I'd done the other way around. Um, there is a poet, a young poet named Inez Smith. And a couple years ago, he wrote um, an open letter to white poets. And it was published in Poetry Magazine. And he was basically requesting slash challenging white poets, especially male white poets, who don't usually have any need to take on social issues to do just that, to take on some social issues and lend their skills to that. So I tried for a year and then burned all of it. It was awful. But in the process, I started digging through history, trying to learn some of the history I'd forgotten, learn about people that I didn't know about. And I was also kind of stuttering contemporary issues and trying to bridge those. And I discovered this figure. Um, you probably all know who he, is, who he is, I did not, but his name's ben Benjamin Banneker. Um, and he, let me find my notes, now I'm getting nervous trying to explain him. Um, he was an astronomer and a farmer. Um, he actually was a surveyor that helped laid out, lay out um, the original grid for Washington, D.C. And he worked with Thomas Jefferson. And for a black man at that time, it was, he was an anomaly. Um, and so I decided to write a poem to him. Um, and this is what came of it. I should also remember, I wrote a note. He built the first clock in the new world. He modeled it off of a, a pocket watch and built this large wooden clock that was like this tall with wooden gears. Um, and it struck on the hour every hour. So it'll come into play. But this is uh, Benjamin Banneker carves a clock. A wooden clock to strike the hour. The hour went and want to come. The hour as men driven ever on. How many hours plotting hours, divining the yields of unsown grain, suns and moons chained to their orbits, men and women chained to each other. Benjamin, the fruit grows huge, troubling the trees. Forgive me. Best we not burden apples with more sin. They've strung the black boys up again. The branch is sturdy, the rope. The wind twists them counterclockwise, and the years collapse between us. Watts unburning into ghettos, Emmett Till restored to sight, Dr. King risen to his feet. Bodies unashed, I don't know their names, I confuse the dates. Blues turn slave songs unsung, 
whips mapping Africa's of air, there you are, whispering in Jefferson's ear. What did you say? And him? Could your ephemeris forecast this world to come? To be free in a fettered world? To tune your mind toward bodies more celestial than flesh? We didn't learn about you in school. Or maybe we did. So many things now you wouldn't understand. A few you would. No need for trees anymore. Benjamin, Missouri wasn't even a state then. Is it gravity that delivers us to our knees? Did they ever elect a secretary of peace? Your clock still keeps time. The hand strikes. Tell me, how many more lunations to bridge this darkness? How many early harvests? Juice runs down my forearms. The wind twists the bodies clockwise, unwinding this world so precariously between us. Tell me, Benjamin, what next? Thanks for letting me read that. Um, now I'm going to read something else that's kind of new um, and very different. Um, like I said before, I, I usually write about love, um, mostly because I get points with my wife. But I, I'm interested, and I've been writing a long sequence about domestic love and how two people try to become one and fail and try again. And um, the form that it kind of fell into is a form that's called contrapuntal, which has to do with counterpoint, as in music, two melodies playing off each other simultaneously. And in poetry, it ends up being a poem that's written in two columns. So you can read the left column as a poem, you can read the right column as a poem, or you can read across the page and it becomes kind of a third poem, kind of the idea of union. Um, and so I wrote a series of these. I'm just going to read one from the series, but as I read it, I'll read the left column and pause, the right column pause, and the whole thing. Um, and the series is called Tectonics. Then to see looking, the creek snaking through acres of milk, the breakwater choked with silt, to find a thirsty sea and blind you briefly, as if blindness were each ruin and erosion for a mind designed to see in sun-scorched earth the cross-stitch of each scrap of us. To see is to be seen, as down there cows, such dark stars. Down into the valley, east along the cut, thistle and scotch grass and that single thought, to find your eyes, sunlight on water, another form of sight, a crude revision from symmetry, the signature of loss, ruin sewn into reveling, unraveling, an ache of space like lazy constellations devouring the sky. Then to see looking down into the valley, the creek snaking east along the cut through acres of milk thistle and scotch grass, the breakwater choked with silt and that single thought to find a thirsty sea, to find your eyes and blind you briefly, sunlight on water, as if blindness were another form of sight each ruin and erosion, a crude revision for a mind designed from symmetry. To see in sun-scorched earth the signature of loss, the cross-stitch of ruin sewn into each scrap of us, reveling, unraveling. 
to see is to be seen. An ache of space as down there cows like lazy constellations, such dark stars devouring the sky. I think I've got two more poems. I have no idea how I'm on time. I did not bring any. We're good. Longer? Good? Perfect. Awesome. Awesome. I'm going to read two. The last two poems are both from the book. Um, this first one is called Trees or Memories. How even night breeds light with time. The eyes dim wattage dialed up, pitch black sat back to almost day. Say a name, any name enough, and watch that face recede toward formlessness. And so to call out too often is to call to nothing, anything. A silver dollar slipped inside a pocket, the lit candle rehearsing its one thought, a dead man's arms folded neatly as a love note. It's for you. It reads, the dead, dead long enough live again trees or memories, one life leavened, folded into the next, feather tucked into feather so that the air might be held a moment again, up or in, a breath folded across the tongue, sung or softly spoken, a name, a note. It says a dark road goes on forever. It says if you were reading this, there must be light enough. You guys are awesome. There's been like no awkward poetry silence. Although I feel like you clapped at the first one and then there was some obligation and I'm really <laughs> thankful for that. <clears throat> I'm, I'm gonna close um, with a poem that closes the whole collection. Um, it's a poem that was written for my son when my wife was still pregnant, our first child. And I had one of those father moments like what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to say? How do I explain all this? And so, of course, I sat down and tried to write a poem. And for three days, it went horribly. I had one line, and I just stared at the piece of paper. And then the second line fell into place, and I had one of those very rare experiences for me where the rest of it tumbled out almost perfectly. Um, it's called For Our Child to Be. Son, daughter, Green dinosaur, your mother some nights dreams you are. What can I say? I've spent three nights trying to write this line, and now it's done. I guess that's how it is. You wager a week, a year, half your life, waiting to brush up against whatever ache drove our ancestors to name the stars. And then you notice constellations blooming in a scatter of roadside daffodils. It's best just to laugh, pick a few, give them away. Tonight, though, I watch the moon proceed across the sky, one white bead on God's black abacus, and wish I could tell you this world is a just and gentle place. I'll save that story for tomorrow. Fold it twice and let it winter in a shoebox with all those mementos you won't believe, my love letters yellowed Polaroids, visions tinged with the light of galaxies long collapsed into iron. All I can say is your mother owns a tree limb's gift for birds. 
my gray moods have nothing to do with you. And sometimes, late summer, when the swifts careen from the eaves, or someone brushes gently the hair out of your eyes, as if to erase that blindness we choose to bear and believe, the world pauses almost, and we lapse into grace. Thanks. Thanks, Josh. That was amazing. Amazing. Thank you so much. One more round of applause for Josh Booten. Really, really been good. Let's put it that way. So, we'll take some questions from you guys, but I, I, I would start out with a question and you know, like, see what your you know, philosophy is on this or kind of your take in the world. I was riding my bike down 8th Street, as I'm apt to do in Boise, Idaho, and went by Foothills School, which you might be familiar with. Right? And there these two like double buses a stem program like micron fancy buses and i'm like okay you know we know what stem stands for and it's not poetry poetry's not in there so i wonder for you like i don't know what in society is the value of poetry for you personally we'll go, for, like, go for that one go for that one. i got so it um i've always said that the value of poetry is the fact that it has so little value i I find, the, I thought that makes me insanely happy is when I'm writing, sometimes I write late at night or early in the morning and there's not much light and you see a window across the street and you realize they're probably watching TV or forgot to turn off the light, but you also realize that there's people in the city that you're in and across the world that are sitting up late at night reading the same books that you read and writing their own poems for n no other reason than the fact that they want to mess around with language and connect with the people around them and connect for me personally, connect with writers that came before me that I've built my own work off. Um, it's that, it's got no commodity, it's not commercial, so it feels really good and not dirty to do it. <laughs> That's true, yeah. Um, you're not sponsored by Micro on this. <laughs> no, no. Um, I would say, all, I guess in that vein, like what, or who are the people, first of all, that have most influenced you? That's kind of a typical sort of lit question. I don't want to just ask that, but I mean, when was the moment that you kind of maybe had that turn in your life? Like what was like, I, I want to do this, I can do this, and why poetry and not fiction or nonfiction? Well, that's easy because poetry is cooler. <laughs> but well, wait a um, minute, I'm a fiction writer. <laughs> that's a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> I write some poetry too. I'll show that's it right. to you. So you're, you're okay. Um, <laughs> I have some very strange answers. Um, first time I knew I wanted to be a poet was when I um, listened to my first Elliott Smith album. And I was really into the lyrics. And I realized that learning an instrument was a lot of work, but I thought I could write some words. So I stuck with that. And I wrote a lot of really bad like drug poems, even though I wasn't doing drugs. I just uh, used his vehicle. Um, he did more research than you, for he sure. He did. Right. He did, for sure. Um, and then later on, it was encountering certain poets that made me know that, I, that what could be done could be really special. Larry Levis was for sure the poet for me that I first read and just, like, like Emily Dickinson said, said, it took the top of my head off. It was amazing. Elizabeth Bishop was another one, but it took a while for me to get there. Those are two people I still go back to a lot. Um, and now the great thing is there's tons of young poets putting out phenomenal work. And every day you wake up and you're like, as my friend Sam said, some dope shit. And you've gotta, 
you feel like you've got to go back to the table and write some more stuff because um, the bar is definitely high right now. I, I mean, people don't have great access to poetry. Like, it's not a huge section of the bookstore. So for you, like, what would you recommend to our audience as far as like, where do you find to get I would, sort of stuff? Yeah, I would just go type in online journals. And so the thing is, so many of our literary magazines are moving to an online format, and many, many of them are publishing the whole thing online. And so you can go there and read the whole thing for free, and then you just kind of trace the poets you like back. And then you, a lot of times I find out, find out about stuff by, I see a poem in a journal, I read some more stuff for that poet, I see if there's any interviews with that poet, and oftentimes then they get asked the question, who do you like? And then you can trace your way through and kind of develop a lineage. Um, but I think the access to poetry right now is actually pretty phenomenal digitally. All right, well, good to know. And Sam, you're right here. So you have your first question, and so what, what's your question? Do you want the mic? I think we should put Sam on the mic. Because he's yes, extraordinary this way. Oh my gosh, first of all, what a good, my God, my God. How dope as shit was that, right? So first on behalf of all the writers, here, you know, kill yourself, because that's what we're going to do after <laughs> listening to that. It was so good. You don't know what lines you want to, oh my God, the whole question, thing. No. Yeah, the question <laughs> would be, uh, uh, when you're thinking of a poem, and, and you have a lot of them before you sort through and decide what the thing is, do you decide on, is there a single line that sticks out for you? Is there a line in the poem that drags you to the poem, or is it just the idea of the poem that makes you want to fulfill it? What, what is that, a single line or a full idea? I think usually it's a scenario or a memory, but then what happens is I start to write the poem and the first 20 to 40 to 4,000 lines are awful, and then that line pops out. The hard part is for me, that line sometimes becomes the first line, sometimes it becomes a bridge, and you're just looking for something to stick that you feel like is compelling enough to keep going. The biggest thing I learned over time is to write through my endings, because oftentimes I would write and think, that was pretty good, and then you go back a month or two later and go, not as good as I thought. <laughs> and so if you write past your ending, oftentimes you'll discover something more there, or if you don't, then you've got your ending kind of built in. But I think on both ends, I kind of overdo it and then cull from that the last piece. So other people out here, other people out here, I should say, into the microphone. So anybody else have questions for Josh? Yeah. All right, so the question, so we can do this for Boise Radio, Radio Boise, so we can get it, but yes, yeah, about your, your job as a, a speech therapist and your poetry and how that works together language-wise. Basically, you had a better question than that, but you know, <laughs> that's the basics. I think, I think one thing is thematically it affects my work because I'm very focused on connection, um, whether that's communication, compassion. I'm, I tend to focus on people in my work. But I think the other big thing that I've pulled from it is oftentimes the breakdown of language is where the kind of magic happens in the phrase. So I've gotten, I used to write poems that were very formal and very much thought from beginning to end very clearly with very few deviations. And I realized as I worked with people with aphasia, um, the mind is sloppy, but sometimes that's the beautiful part. That's where the surprise happens. So I became more aware of trying to follow those, what seemed like mishaps and dead ends. And oftentimes those became the turn. For example, on the poem Finches, Finches that I read, the whole thing about the Chinese lanterns and the virgins getting married was just literally like a random thought that popped in my head and I immediately took my pencil and went right through it. And then I took it to someone and they were like, that's the best shit in the whole poem. And I was like, 
oh, and that was one of the first poems I wrote for this book. And so that instructed, I think, that, that sloppiness is actually a form in itself. Other questions, other questions. Oh, Jordan, was that you wanting to, okay, what was your question? I was just introduced to you recently, and it was really refreshing poetry. Aside from a lot of stuff I've been reading, really enjoyed it. Um, I can't imagine, like, you're writing all this poetry, and it's so great, but what if you weren't? What would you be doing? Whoa, what if you I, weren't brilliant? That's just terrible. What would I be doing? Think about it, I'd probably be doing a lot of the things I already do, which is drink beer and fish. Um, I'd probably fish more. I don't know if I'd catch any more fish, but that's probably what I would do. You um, seem like the fish in Idaho is a good place for that. It is. That's yeah. awesome. I would love to be a musician, and I've hacked my way through a few instruments, so I probably would have spent more time doing that. What's your favorite Elliott Smith song? Oh, man. Rose Parade? Oh, I do love Rose Parade. There's actually, did you know he made an error in that song? And I love, I love when things are errors and no one catches them. He says, walk down the street like the Duracell bunny, but it's actually the Energizer bunny. So, isn't that? That's poetry, right? That's what I'm saying. Yeah, like, it falls on. apart, it works out. I would um, say, you know, don't stab yourself in the heart or let your girlfriend or wife do it to yeah, you, as the theory to, exists out there we'll on the internet. We, so. there, there was this book that came out. Um, about the madness of genius, and it ranked all the different art forms and how likely they were to be insane. And poet was number one. Clearly, that's why it's the coolest, right? That's, all right, we'll end with that. All right, be careful, poets, be careful. And we'll take a break for about 10 minutes, and we'll have a little bit of introduction, trivia, and also Megan Kenny, who's going to read some awesome fiction. And Sam, I'm sure we'll have lines that will be Adobe shit to bring out for us. So, okay. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Thanks again. Right now we have Megan Kenny. Megan Kenny is a graduate of the BSU MFA program and is someone I've known for a long time and admired her work for a long time. And it's awesome that she's been able to come back and, you know, sort of grace us with one of her wonderful, you know, wonderful Idaho stories. Um, she, though she's from the East, she's definitely written a lot about this place, this place we live in, Idaho and has been an influence by the West in a way that I think has been profound in her life. And does, she does it really, really well. And I'll just re read you her credentials right now. So Megan Kenny's fiction has won the Iowa Review Fiction Award and appeared in publications including the Cincinnati Review, the Kenyon Review, the Gettysburg Review, Hobart, and elsewhere. She has been a Peter Taylor Fellow at the Kenyon Review Writers Workshop, a Tigner Writing Fellow at Gilman School, and a scholar at Breadloaf Writers Conference. Her collection of short stories, Love is No Small Thing, is forthcoming from LSU Press, LSU Press their yellow, Yellow Shoe Fiction Series in 2017. A 2002 graduate from the Boise State University MFA program. She now lives in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And here she is, Megan Kenny. Come on up. All right, thanks, Chris. Um, can you hear me? Uh, it's good to be back. Um, I love Boise, and it's good to, be, uh, to see a lot of old friends and a little scary to see a lot of strangers. Um, my, like Josh, I write a lot about love as well. Um, familial love and romantic love and uh, all the things I don't understand about it. Um, this story I'm going to read is the last story in my collection, um, which is titled Love is No Small Thing. And this story is called Heartbreak Hotel. 
Um, I'll just preface it by saying, because I am a female, uh, I write a lot of stories from the male point of view, and this one is from a male point of view, from a father's point of view. I want to tell you something heartbreaking, my daughter Lindsay says. We're playing Heartbreak Hotel. We've played it in the car since she was 10, old enough, I'm just gonna do this, old enough to know what heartbreak and heartache is about. It's not a win-lose game, it's a get-to-know-you game. Lindsay drives. We're on Highway 20 near Peekaboo, a two-laner through high desert. It's June in southern Idaho, an afternoon when the air is so hot, the heat hovers over the road in a blur. Sagebrush and more sagebrush sprinkles the brown plains and mountains with green. The sky blooms blue above us. It broke my heart when I was 13 and realized I wouldn't be an astronaut, she says. But you were a successful space cadet, I say. Very funny, Dad. She gives me the sideways eye. She's a pretty girl and looks younger than her 35 years. She has black as night hair and freckles like tiny constellations on her face. I am proud she is my daughter. We are on our way to Boise, where she has a new apartment and a new job as curator of the Boise Art Museum. There is a welcome reception for her in the main gallery at seven tonight. We started in Boston, and this is our sixth and last day on the road. What am I doing here? I've never driven across the United States, and how many times in your life do you get to spend a week alone with one of your children, getting to know her as an adult by traveling roads across your very own country? I turn the air conditioner down to 64 degrees. I want to tell you something heartbreaking, I say. Lindsay reaches between the seats for something in the back and pats her hand around like a blind person looking for a wall. Hands on the wheel, I say. What do you need? The car is hers, a silver Volkswagen Jetta. Lindsay comes back around, hands her on the wheel, she says. I need my driving cap. She's insisted on wearing a driving cap this whole week. It's Kelly green and knitted and the ugliest thing I've ever seen. I reach back, find it, hand it to her. What is it with this hat, I ask? It's 99 degrees on the road. Keeps me alert, she says, and adjusts the hat and scratches her forehead. Because it makes her head itch, I ask. Dad, just say her heartbreak. I was going to tell her it breaks my heart. I never got to move about like she does. Never got to follow my passions and take risks. But instead, I say, it breaks my heart to see you wear that hat. Then hail comes out of nowhere. The sky is blue one minute, and then ice rocks are bamming the roof, the hood, and pinging off the windshield, steaming up the road. Jesus, she says, good thing I have my hat on. <laughs> Pull over, Lindsay, I say, don't get excited. She eases onto the shoulder. I roll down my window a slice. The air smells like hot, wet blacktop and spearmint from the damp sagebrush. Should we get out, she says, feel it? If you want to get knocked out, I tell her, I'll be in here. The hail shrinks to pebble size in minutes, but still falls strong and covers the ground like confetti. Lindsay opens the door and slides out. One small hail ball flies in on the leather seat, and I pick it up and roll it between my fingers until it melts. When she comes back inside, her hat and face are wet and shiny. I have something heartbreaking to tell you, she says. I'm all ears, I say, and I hand her a tissue from the glove compartment. She wipes her cheeks and chin, then bites her thumbnail. I know this habit of hers. She's holding in her heartbreak and has a downward kind of smile like she's apologizing for what she's about to say. <clears throat> Two hours earlier, we made a lunch stop in Arco to get a hamburger and milkshake at Pickle's Place. 
Then we, went to then we went to the first plant to use atomic power for electricity, where my maternal uncle Don Pettit had been a physicist in the 1950s. There were a couple light bulbs lit up as proof, and a chalkboard behind a plexiglass cover on which he and 10 other scientists had signed their names. In 1951, they powered a light bulb. In 1955, they lit up the whole town, the first city in the world to be powered by nuclear energy under Eisenhower's Atoms for Peace program. Now it's a museum. Lindsay and I, start, ugh, Lindsay and I stared at the light bulbs, their little filaments bright like the sun inside the glass. The rest of the place had painted cement floors and walls in gunmetal gray, dull and institutional. It felt like we were in a prison, and the air smelled like chalk and cold metal desks. There were a lot of large contraptions with buttons, levers, numbers, and yellow signs everywhere announcing danger, as if touching something might end life on Earth. They looked like time machines. I'd get inside one of those and go to Greece, wear a white toga and flat sandals, and have someone braid my hair every day, Lindsay said, then feed me figs and lamb and red wine. First, I'd go to the Civil War straight to Gettysburg, I said. July 1st, 1863, I'd live in Paris, drink with Hemingway and Fitzgerald and write novels. Then I'd go watch Babe Ruth play baseball. Busy, she said. There are only so many things you can be in one life. I wish there were more times to be all the other me's, I said. All the other you's, she said. I had dreams. Being a foot doctor was not my number one passion in life. Did you know I had a parakeet named Budge when I was 12? And for years, all I wanted to do was be an avian vet. Did you know I wrote three novels in college, all of which I burned one drunken night after Janice Hansen dumped me senior year? I did not know that, Lindsay said. Now you do. Now you know some secret information about your dear old dad. She nodded as if in thought, but didn't seem impressed or particularly surprised. I hadn't told many people other than my wife any of those things. I never wanted my girls to know how often I wished I'd veered off the straight and narrow path to follow my heart. I was practical, and when you have a wife and kids, a house, car, and food to pay for, risks aren't wise or welcomed. A man with thick-soled black shoes was being loud to our right near the light bulb exhibit. Are you kidding me? Are you serious? He wiped his hand over his mouth and shook his head. All those brains and all they came up with was how to light a light bulb? I moved toward this man. I tended to move toward people in a rage. I'm not a physicist, I said, but nuclear electricity was one of the most efficient forms of power we've ever known. These light bulbs are brilliant if you think about it. He turned to me, his shoes squishing on the floor, his lips parted, his head jerked back. Are you a tour guide? <laughs> then it occurred to me he might be a man who didn't want to think about it or anything else. Lindsay stood by the machine with her arms crossed and her head cocked to one side. She'd seen me approach people before. My own father was a man with a temper, and I'd spent my youth trying to reason with him and calm him down. He'd go off about any small thing, a candy wrapper that didn't look right, if the washing machine made a funny noise, or whatever he felt like raging about to compensate for his own confusion and self-hatred, and for all the pent-up anger he had about things he'd wanted to do but never did. He didn't change jobs or even choose a profession. He was a plumber because his father was a plumber. He never lived outside of Lowell, Massachusetts or traveled overseas. But his brother chose to go to college and became a physicist. His brother lived in places like Arco, Idaho and Osaka, Japan, and then came home to teach at MIT. 
but my father was a stuck man and an angry man, and I vowed I'd never be like him. No, no tour guide, I said, but my uncle is Don Pettit up there. I pointed to the blackboard. Big whoop, he said. He stared at me, strained his eyes wide. He waited for my next move. He had large face pores. <laughs> Are we in junior high, I said. I'm sorry, it's an incredible light bulb. I didn't mean to disturb you. I walked back toward Lindsay. I didn't want to look at him anymore. Nice one, Mr. Science, the man said and followed me. I waved my hand in the air, a brush off goodbye. Hey, Mr. Science, he said, why is the tour over so fast? Dad, Lindsay said in a low voice, you've got to stop doing this. Who are you anyway, the man asked. My daughter and I are just passing through, I said. The man stood in front of us with his arms crossed over his chest. He looked at Lindsay, then at me, then back at Lindsay. You don't look related, he said. A generator clicked on and hummed loudly. You're gross, Lindsay said, I'm out of here. And she walked for the exit. I turned to follow her and the man stepped in my path. I bet that's your BMW from California in the parking lot. I can tell by how you dress, he said. All right, I said and looked down at my clothes. I didn't know how someone who drove a BMW dressed. I did not have a BMW. It's the Oxford shirt and loafers, he said. I bet you loaf around and then get into that fancy box and zoom around thinking you're better than other people, don't you? You're a real brain surgeon, I said. Sherlock Holmes, I'm sorry I approached you. I walked around him slowly. He seemed like the kind of guy who might body check me or grab my collar. As I was about to leave the building, he yelled, hey, Mr. Manners. I turned around. He stood in the same place, arms still crossed, watching me. I'll be on the road today, he said and winked. I'll be looking for you. The hail doesn't last long, it never does, but the air is different. It's lighter and cleaner. There's blue sky all around, except for right above us and it feels like we're under the shadow of a maple tree. Lindsay doesn't give up her heartbreak, and I don't want to push it. I'm grateful to learn about my daughter in these ways, but her heartbreaks seem negligible. I respect her challenges, and I know everyone carries their own brand of hurt, but she is so lucky. She's young, lives her life according to her passions, and I imagine carries little regret, if any. I carry little regret myself, but what, I, but what I would have given for the choices and freedoms she has. Why don't I drive, I ask, and we switch seats. I pull back onto Highway 20. That guy in Arco was creepy, Lindsay says. Forget about him, I say. Why do you need to talk to people like that? I don't know, I tap the steering wheel. Maybe I feel like I can change their minds about something. You're lucky that asshole didn't have a gun, she says. I miss my own bed, miss my wife, miss my space. My ass hurts from sitting in this car all day, every day for six days, and I'm ready to go home. But a thought crosses my mind that has been crossing my mind a lot lately. I am getting old, I'm 65, and I might not get to spend time with my children like this for much longer. I have been telling myself to look around, be aware, listen more closely, be thankful, be glad for the life I've been given and have created. Ten miles down the road, we stop at a stinker station and I fill up. We go in for bathroom, pretzels, and Diet Cokes. And when we come out, the man from the museum is sitting in the back seat of our car with his seatbelt on. He smiles and waves. Is this really happening, Lindsay asks? Jesus, this is a joke, right? We have three hours to drive, check into the hotel, and get ready for tonight. This cannot happen. I open the door and say, you need to get out of this car. Mr. Manners, he says, I missed you. No way, Lindsay says. She goes back into the store, and I see her talking to the clerk and pointing at us. 
I bet, I say, what are you doing? Listen, he says, I'm just loafing around. He lifts up his foot and has on tan oxiders. Those shoes will give you bunions, so you better get out and buy another pair, I say. Nice try, he says. I'm a foot doctor, I tell him. Your feet are probably red and swollen at the edges. You'd, better, you'd be better off with those gummy geriatric shoes. A PA system clicks on, and a woman says, man, in the silver Volkswagen, man, you best move along or the authorities will be involved. He bends down and takes off his shoes. His feet are red and swollen at the edges. What else, he asks. Do you know how, many co how my cotton polyester shirt will affect my skin? Do you know why I have a bald spot on the back of my head, but thick hair everywhere else? Do you know why my leg twitches when I fall asleep? No, I say, because I'm a foot doctor. Isn't that exciting, he says. Lindsay comes out, followed by the attendant, who looks 18 and wears checkered high tops and a fluorescent pink t-shirt with a bright yellow lightning bolt in the center. The attendant walks to our car, looks at me and says, I'm Pavy, sir, and this has never happened before. Then she looks at the man in my car and says, dude, you cannot sit in other people's cars. The man is still looking at his feet and then sets the shoes aside on the seat. Why do you call him sir and me dude? This man is my brother, he says, nodding at me. These two are having a bad day. We are not related. This man is crazy, Lindsay says. How did you get here, I ask him. I've got my ways, he says. Two RVs from Wyoming pull in, and Pavy says, oh my god, and rolls her eyes. I hate RVs. I have to go deal with these road hogs. Come tell me if you want me to call the cops. She walks back into the store. Lindsay looks at both of us. I have to get to Boise, she says. I have a new job and a fancy reception to attend, and neither of you better screw this up for me. This is all I have. I don't have a husband, I don't have kids, but I do have a good job, and I don't want to lose it. If you won't get the hell out, then you're coming with us. She sits in the car and waits. Then the man in the back seat settles in and waits. Lindsay purses her lips and twists her hands together as if this man were a small, harmless child throwing a tantrum who needs to be ignored. The man sighs and nods at me as though we best get going and quit wasting time. Lindsay, honey, get out of the car. What if this man has a knife or a gun? Mr. Manage, he says, I don't have anything but these shoes. Nobody ever committed a crime with a shoe. The hell they haven't, I say. I go around and open the back door, grab his shirt at the chest, and try to pull him toward me, but he doesn't budge. I do this three times, and he's sturdy as a block of cement. So I touch his shirt and pants for weapons and don't feel anything except a wallet. He doesn't flinch or look at me the whole time. He smells moldy like something wet that never dries. Come on, Dad, Lindsay says. I have a pocket knife. I'll stab the motherfucker if he gets funky. <laughs> He's already funky, I say. I can hear you, the man says. <laughs> Good, he can hear us, Lindsay says. Now let's go. I'm surprised by how unconcerned she is, oblivious of the dangers that lurk. Or maybe it's this fearlessness that allows her to take the risks she does. Get in the car, Dad. The man nods yes. This is crazy, I say. I'm your father. I'm supposed to protect you. Maybe it's too late. Maybe I'm too old for that, she says. Let's go. It seems as if these two laconic figures, my beloved inscrutable daughter and this menacing inscrutable stranger, are both grimly, silently, patiently waiting for me as if they've struck a deal, have forged something of an alliance against me and my ways of thinking. You're never too old, Lindsay, I say. That's sweet, the man says. I wish I had a father who gave a crap. 
I get into the car. Tell me your name and where we're dropping you off. I look in the rearview mirror. He's smiling and has a far-off look. I don't know yet, he says. You don't know your name, I say? Or where I'm going, he says. Lindsay takes off her hat and holds it in her lap. Deep, she says, mysterious. It is a deep and mysterious world, young lady, he says. She loops, the pinky, she loops her pinky through one of the knit holes in the hat. Did you make that thing, I ask? Just drive, would you? She exhales loudly and tilts her head against the headrest, her eyes toward the ceiling. It's as though she has a near desperate need to get to her destination, a need whose urgency I can't quite understand, but that has made her reckless. I'm not the bad guy here, honey, take it easy. She lifts her knee and bangs her foot down on the floorboard three times. I put my hand on top of her knee. She's crying. Can we just go, please? I turn around. Listen, man, you're upsetting my daughter. You think you could leave? I don't care about him, Lindsay says through a hiccup. This has nothing to do with him. What is this, I say. I don't want to live in Boise, she says. Oh, boy, the man says from the back seat. Would you shut up, I say. The RV motors rumble back to life. Summer vacationers with bicycles and kayaks attach to their vehicles. In the mirror, I see the man check his watch as though he has somewhere to be. It's been a long trip. You're tired and nervous, I say. I put my hand on her shoulder, but she flinches it away. Get going, she says. I don't want to be stuck behind those vacation homes on wheels. This is your last chance to get out, I say to the man. I'm a horrible driver, and your life is at risk. I'm very comfortable, thank you, he says. I start the engine and pull onto the road. We need to make time and hope for the best with the stranger in the back seat. I've heard good things about Boise, I say to Lindsay. I'm tired of moving and of being far away and alone. She wipes at her eyes with the palms of her hands. I want a redo. This is a redo, I say. She's been so many places, done so many things. Boston, Seattle, Vietnam, Argentina, teacher, photographer, Red Cross worker, French translator, and now an art curator. She's had a wonderful, adventurous life, and I tell her that all the time. But it seems she has no idea where she belongs, and I know it breaks her heart to be moving through the world alone, searching for a reason to stay in one place, looking for someone to anchor her. The heartbreak of loneliness is a real ache and something I can't fix for her. A redo to have made a different choice years ago to stay put and make a life in one place with someone, she says. With someone who, I ask? I don't know, she says. Maybe Mark or Jason or Peter would have worked out if I hadn't been so brash and could have been more accommodating, made more compromises. Accommodating like hell, I say. I'm not impossible, she says. Never said you were. You have standards. Keep them. Look at all the risks you've taken. Risks I never took. Risks my father never took that soured him in life. I admire you for that. You've seen and done more than most people my age. By myself, she says. You only have yourself. I hate that saying, she says. I bet even this guy has more than himself. She points her thumb toward the back seat. I have a 12-year-old son named Jacob, he says, and a cat named Ndugu. See, Lindsay says. Quit feeling sorry for yourself, the man says. So what, you don't have a boyfriend? So what, you live alone? You have a family, you have a job, you have a Volkswagen, and I bet you went to college and have a friend or two. Boise's not a bad place. They have restaurants and movies. Lindsay rolls down her window and leans her hat out. The desert is flat with silvery sagebrush and cheatgrass as yellow and dry as hay. Beyond are brown and chiseled mountains. The heat pushes in. It is dry like sauna heat. A tissue in the cup holder rises and flies out the window like a ghost. 
Goodbye, Tishy, Lindsay says. Fare thee well. We are 10 miles from Highway 84, which will take us east to Boise, or west to Boise. I drive, <laughs> whatever. I drive us down into a valley that's burned out, charred black and smells like ash. A cigarette thrown out the window, a spark from an exhaust pipe, lightning. It is a scarred and barren landscape. It is ignitable. It is unforgiving. There is nowhere to hide. The air makes a ceiling sound as Lindsay rolls up her window. It is so hot, she says, and dead. I might as well move to the goddamn moon. Don't go to the moon, I say. Fine, Venus. Maybe I can find a lover on Venus. She asks us all the time why she's alone, why she's not found a man to marry and with whom to have children, but we don't know. Nothing is a given, not even the love between a parent and a child. I wonder if I was lucky to have met my wife, or if I simply made a choice and stuck with it, or maybe it was both, because I am happy, and I still love my wife, and there is nowhere I'd rather be. It will work out, I say. You'll be a top-notch curator. They need you, and you're not alone. You'll never be alone. You don't know that, she says. I'll bet on it, I say. The moon would be cold anyway, the man says from the back seat, and you'd have to float everywhere and eat dried foods. Lindsay laughs. There you go, the man says. Is Boise your heartbreak, I ask? Partly, she says, but mostly it's being alone. Heartbreak, the man asks. Lindsay turns to look at him. Tell us your heartbreak. I watch him in the mirror. His eyes dart back and forth, and he bobs his head a little. Is moving to Boise and not having a boyfriend really so heartbreaking it's making you cry, he asks. I have every right to be sad about whatever I want, she says. The man unbuckles his seatbelt and leans forward between the seats. I put my hand on the phone. I've had myself dialed on 911 and ready to go, resting on my left thigh, but there's not been any reception until now. You invite heartbreak, he says. You, self you set yourself up for it. Please sit back, I say. I get a whoof of mothball and dust. Is this a habit of yours, Lindsay asks, hobo philosopher? Gets me where I need to go, he says. Everybody's going somewhere. Be happy you have somewhere to go and that there are people who know where you are in the world. I haven't seen my son in 10 years and my parents are dead and that's just the way it is. Well, I don't know where I'm going, Lindsay says, but I'm sorry about your son and parents. Thank you, he says, I appreciate that. We drive on without talk between us. We sail down a long hill and the land flattens. There are green fields of soybeans. There are cattle and scruffy horses. There are weathered wooden rail pasture fences that lean forward and backward, warped, as though a good wind could blow them over. The sky is big. I can see a long way. Hundreds of miles south of the, or wherever, are the Awahi Mountains, and to the east and west are plains and deep cuts where the land drops into the Snake River Canyon, where the surface of the earth breaks into crevices and cracks, left behind from the elements wearing her down, reshaping her, making her shift and change, shift and change. Fast food and gas stations and mini-marts are ahead. My stop's up here, he says, the gas station with the Arby's. I pull into the lot and park. He steps out and shuts the door. He raps on Lindsay's window with his knuckles. She rolls it down, and for a moment, I think he has something to give her, like a business card or a piece of candy. He taps his finger on his temple over and over. You think too much. You're going to Boise, kid, and that's the way it is. Don't spend so much time wishing for things you don't have. You'll get what you're supposed to get. 
The sun is low and directly in front of us, streaming through the windshield. The sunlight washes a copper glow over the dry brown desert that's flat as a plate. The man cups one hand over his eyebrows and looks out toward the highway into the light. Straight that way, it's as simple as that, a new start, a second or third or fourth chance. Lucky you. The man bangs on the roof of the car with one hand twice. Lucky you, he says again, and then turns and walks through the filling station into the Arby's. I think, yes, lucky her. How many times do you get to start over in this life? How many? Lindsay looks into the setting sun, and so do I. It lights her face. Her hair glows like it's on fire, and her brown eyes become translucent-like. I see lines of orange, like tiger stripes, deep inside them. She's my girl. Ugh, she's my girl. She'll come through. She'll be all right. And I know, she knows, as I know, and as my father knew, that you just keep going. You keep going. It's all you can do. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Megan. Thank you, Megan. Okay, that's all right. So, yes, one more round of applause for Megan Kenny. What a great story. Heartbreak Hotel. Very good. So, it's an Idaho story. You've lived in Idaho, obviously, and you, you said it here, but I, I, it's a, I'm not sure. Is it based on a true story? Is this autobiographical? No. No. <laughs> but what was the process? But I have driven across country with my dad. Yeah. And but we did not pick up a strange man anywhere along the way. I think he kind of picked them up, by the way. So or <laughs> yeah. he. But that would, I would ask you, like, the process of maybe constructing that story. Like, probably a familiar setting with your father and you traveling across country could be applied to the short story in a fictional way, but then you brought in the wild card. I don't know. How does that work for you with that story? How did it come together? And then maybe stories in general. How do you put them together? So this one was from a prompt in a, at a, uh, when I was at the Kenyan Review Writers Workshop. Um, one of my favorite, I got to be in a workshop with one of my favorite writers, Ron Carlson, um, and a uh, great short story writer. And he gave us a prompt. And the prompt was to start a story with a game and then to shift time a couple of times, so to start in a present moment and then to shift back into a past moment and then to shift back into a present moment. Um, I'm a sucker for father-daughter stories. Andre Dubus's A Father's Story is one of my favorite stories ever. Um, and, uh, and that idea of familial love. Yes, I've driven across country from the East Coast to Boise with my dad. Um, and I like the idea of taking a trip um, and, and then to, to add into that the idea of love. Um, initially, I think I was going to focus more on the father and some secret he had about his love life, but it really then shifted more toward the daughter and him really getting to know his daughter more, um, which I thought was interesting. Um, and then, what else? Um, there was something else I was going to say, well, but I can't remember. I mean, fully construct this other character. It was he's a wonderful character who just gets in the backseat. We don't ever know his name. I don't oh. believe, and he's just the dude with the loafers that yeah. hurt his feet. So I don't know where he came from. Um, another, I guess, another fav favorite writer of mine is Flannery O'Connor, and um, 
A Good Man is Hard to Find is a really creepy, weird story where um, the misfit comes into play and he's sort of this unexpected, really creepy character. And um, yeah, I did not intend for this guy to kind of show back up in the story, but sometimes when I'm stuck, that's just what happens. Just like, well, why, I guess this is gonna happen now. I don't know that it's always really well thought out, Christian Wynn. I would agree. Um, I would agree. Sometimes the Bible uh, says Sometimes it just happens. Heals the wooden leg. So um, that's, yes. Yeah. Uh, okay. I would also ask you to tell Josh Booten why fiction and short fiction is much cooler than poetry, by the way. Just. Sorry. <laughs> what do you think, actually, in that vein, like, why do you write the short story primarily? Have you written a novel? and are good with long form, but also short story's been a thing you've gone to mostly, I feel like. Yeah, I don't know. Um, maybe I have a short attention span. Uh, I love short stories. I like, the, I like the compactness. I like that you have to reach an arc very quickly and then come back down. I like that um, conciseness of language. Uh, and novels are scary and really hard. And so I really I love short stories. Some, novel, some novels will say that short stories are really, really, really hard. So it's, it's kind of yeah. an odd thing. So it's your, more, more your sensibility. But I, I think starting in high school, the writers I was exposed to were short story writers that I really connected with. Like, like, who, like, you get some like Raymond here. Carver and Tobias Wolf and Richard Ford and all those kinds of people. Um, all those kinds of white males. All those yeah, white men. Like, yeah, I know. But they're pretty What pretty assholes. Good. <laughs> But we need some more women, like well, Megan Kenny. Well, we have Megan Kenny, yes, exactly. Okay. So that is actually a thing that's been cool. very prevalent in, I think, the contemporary you know, short story culture. People like Claire V. Watkins, Jennifer Egan, Laura Vandenberg, who's a friend of yours, who stood us up a couple years ago for a story for it, by the way. We're still very bitter. She was sick, I know, yeah, but sorry. it's okay. But other questions, not just for me, from folks in the audience about Megan's story, her process, anything. You don't have to ask anything either. <laughs> Anyone? Yes. Writing from a man's perspective, like why did that happen and when? I would say in graduate school at Boise State. Um, and I think for me, it's, uh, well, I, I guess I was going to say when you initially asked me that first question, why, why do you write about this thing that's sort of, you know it. Um, what's the Eudora Welty phrase? Like, write about what you know about what you don't know. And so, for me, it's an easier way to access, I think, these really hard subjects that I care about without feeling too close. And so I am able to get a bigger distance from it and then um, I think have better perspective on it than if I were to kind of just smother myself in there. And um, maybe I'll get there, I don't know. But, um, but it, yeah, it just gives me a perspective, and I feel like it, this sounds weird to say. I mean, I'm already, as my good friends in the audience know, I have a total sailor's mouth, but I feel like it really lets me even be more crass on the page, which is awesome. <laughs> so it's kind of fun, yeah. And, and I think, well, just to, one more thing on that. Um, men totally perplex me, and so I think trying to get into their brains and hearts um, is my, my way of trying to figure out what the fuck is going on. <laughs> like, yeah. We, don't, we, don't, we do not know, so don't worry, it's fine. And but they don't yeah, know we, either. We <laughs> Apparently. Likewise, the other way around, so. Yeah. Yes. Question. I actually talked to you for a 
what were your three, first of all? So three big subjects in there from the question asker. I'm a foot doctor. I don't know what to do in my life. And then the father-daughter, and then the, the daughter not knowing precisely. Yeah. So I, yeah, I think that's right. I think it's pairing. I mean, I think it's a father-daughter relationship. And then I think it's that idea of him admiring her and her having all this freedom and not really um, uh, understanding those opportunities that she has. Um, but I also think, so I think there's that generation gap for sure. But I also think for the daughter, it's that loneliness and... Um, um, or sense of loneliness, but I, I, you know she's sort of misguided in some ways. But she's also it's it's what she feels, and I I think it's her her the love her father has for her, but then also her desire to find love somewhere else, like he has. And I don't know, yeah. But thank you. That yeah. it's always illuminating to hear what other people f hear. Like, right, exactly. Yeah, I I think it's interesting. I mean, it's very difficult, I, I feel like, to talk about what you write. And someone like Flannery O'Connor expressed that many times in her career as she talked about her own writing. Um, but you teach writing, and I teach writing, and I know it's kind of difficult to express oftentimes our own take, but we use other people's advice. So you've taught writing over the years, so now what, who do you use? Like, as, I guess people like Eudora Welty and, I mean, et cetera. What well, do you use? So I teach, it's sort of weird. I used to teach college, and then I taught high school, and now I teach seventh grade English. I don't know how that happened. And they're bananas. Like, they are at, they're total beasts when they're 12 years old. Is that um, how you guys talk in the teacher's lounge? Though? They're beasts. Bananas? They're beasts. bananas. I think you probably say fucking little terrors. No, I don't. Really. I don't. I say bananas. Um, but, uh, and then I also teach adults fiction writing online, so I don't get to pick my, my we don't have text for that, but... Um, but yeah, the kids, I mean, for, for younger kids, I can't really teach anything too racy. So I haven't really had the opportunity to, to choose more contemporary writers for, those, for that age group. So yeah, it's more like Eudora Welty and Flannery O'Connor and stuff that's more age appropriate for a 12-year-old. What do you <laughs> think they most connects, though, with your writers when they do actually, like, like jump on to something you've said, like and or use an example of you know another writer saying something. Like when are they like into it more because of what you've said? Oh, that's a hard question. I don't know. I mean, for them, it's really when they get the opportunity to write themselves, and it's and it's it's using like a fiction writer, a poet as a model, and then they get to try it and they really get into that. That's where they get excited. Yeah, but I'm sorry, I took back all the questions i'm like answering like you're asking rather all the questions but we have one over here so have you shared this with your father and wh yeah. what do you think of it i have uh my dad strangely um even though i went to boise state mfa and have friends like chris and tamra and heather and carrie and Lori and all these great people who are amazing readers um, my dad, over the last 12 or so years, has strangely become like my, my first reader. And um, my parents are both really big readers of literary fiction, and um, they are not writers, but uh, yeah, and he reads all my stuff, and he loves this, because he thinks it's about him. Um, 
And my mother thinks I'm insane. Everything I write, she's like totally embarrassed and thinks I'm crazy, but my dad thinks everything is totally rad. So he likes it, and I think he's touched by it. But yeah, I mean, um, you know, I don't know. Hopefully there, there's not a story somewhere where he where there's an older man portrayed as a jerk and he thinks it's him because it could, that could be him too. <laughs> he's a fine man, but still. Uh, but yeah, he, he's really into it. <laughs> I guess what makes him the, the good reader then? Is he just honest with you or is he just like, my daughter can do no wrong? He's pretty honest. He's pretty honest. Sometimes he has some pretty bad advice um, and I don't always take it, like in workshop, you don't always take everybody's advice. But, uh, but I appreciate him reading and just giving feedback because sometimes everybody else is really busy because they have kids and stuff. Absolutely. Okay, well, maybe one more question and then we can hear about Megan's new book a little tiny bit. Yes. Hi, Erica. <laughs> Erica. Erica's an old student of mine from Boise State. Erica. And she's not throwing tomatoes. Wait, <laughs> what is a story you have inside you that you have not told? Can you hear me? Uh, is it, I think you're a mind reader, Erica. Um, there's a story that I've had for a long time that I've been wanting to write, and I don't know how to write it yet. Um, I have no idea how to write it because I, I think I have to write it from a female point of view, and it's really close to me, and it scares me to write it. Um, which would probably be about uh, how women or a woman of a certain age, let's say late 30s, early 40s, experiences the world as a single, childless, unmarried woman, which is like a cold place in hell for a lot of people. And uh, it's a really isolating place to be, and I, I need to figure out how to write that story because I, I know a lot of people like that, and, um, and I think that it's, uh, yeah. I don't know how to write it, though. I don't know how to write it yet. But thanks for asking. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that said, let's hear about what you have written and what is going to come out in, I think, spring 2017, your new book. Yeah, so I think uh, end of February, probably, my, collect my first book, Collection of Short Stories, which uh, has been a long time coming. Uh, short story collections are pretty hard to sell. Um, we'll come out with Louisiana State University Press in February, and I think it's about 12 stories, and the theme is really love. What's the title again? Love is no small thing, so. Which, as Josh also mentioned, he, he read about, as I, I mean, I think as a, 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 I don't know, a person who cares about the world and, you know, sort of their own stake in it, that's oftentimes where these short stories of a, you know, a literary bent and these poems of, like, you know, sort of language, love, beauty in the world come from is a, that, that notion of love, like, mm -hmm. wanting to convey that. And so that's fantastic. And you did a great job with this story. And this one's the last one, the closing story in your book. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it, as we, we hope... By the way, Josh, is your book going to be available at Rediscovered? Is it? They would carry it, so you should go down there and get it in there. But okay, <laughs> but you have this book that you're going to go talk to them about carrying, and I think it'll be great to have like you know someone who writes a lot about the Idaho and Boise, you know, okay. kind of repped here. And you'll be back possibly in the Hopefully spring. Hopefully next year. Hopefully next book year. Book tour. Okay. Yeah. I want to thank everybody for coming out tonight and your smart questions and for. 
All right. Well, thanks very much, everybody, and we'll see you next month. Okay.